Let's turn in the scriptures to 1 Peter 5. Today is our final study for now in Peter's first letter. We actually began our study through this letter about three months ago. The first message that I preached on it was actually March 27th. And in that first message, I actually had us turn to the final three verses of the book. So if you're in 1 Peter 5, look down at the last three verses. I just want to review a few of the details that I shared in that first message. In verse 12, I pointed out that the language there, by Silvanus or by Silas, a faithful brother as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, that could convey that Silas is actually the, the, the emanuensis, you might say, or the one receiving the dictation as Peter gives it. He may have also carried the letter uh, as well, but he was serving as Peter's administrative assistant. And then look at the next phrase. He said, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. This little phrase, it's actually out on our sign this morning as you came in, you may have noted, the true grace of God. This is Peter's own summary of his letter. He basically thinks that these couple pages are unpacking the grace of God. Grace, of course, as our whole service is focused on this morning, is undeserved kindness. It's receiving kindness when we actually deserve the opposite. And so Peter in this letter writes about God's grace that saves us and forgives us, delivers us from condemnation. He also writes about God's grace that strengthens and sustains us through every trial we suffer through. And he also describes the grace of God that is securing us until we reach what he calls the eternal glory, our inheritance in the kingdom under the rule of God's chosen king, the Messiah. Peter has been describing that it is grace that saves, grace that sustains, grace that secures until we we realize our inheritance. And he says, my whole letter is about the true grace of God. It centers on Jesus. It centers on, on how we receive that grace simply by faith, not by earning it but instead by trusting and continuing to trust all that Jesus has done for us. This is the true grace of God. Now, Peter wrote this letter about 64 AD, is a close guess. It's about 30 years after he had personally witnessed Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, ascension into heaven. He wrote it probably from Rome. The reference there in verse 13, she who's at Babylon is probably... Uh, a, uh, a metaphoric reference to Rome as a godless place at the time. And he's probably been writing, if you go back to the very first letter of the book, you know that he's writing to people in the modern region of Turkey. It seems that if you connect the dots, he's writing from Rome to people he used to pastor that had been forced out of their homes, maybe by the emperor, maybe trying to repopulate new cities and using the dregs of Roman society to do so these believers have been mistreated. They've been oppressed. 
by the government and forced to leave, and they are suffering horrifically. And Peter writes this letter trying to equip them for living in the power of God's grace. Now, if your reaction right now is like, wait, wait, if I lost my home and was forced a thousand miles away from the community in which I grew up, and I was basically starting life over from scratch in my, in my middle-aged years, you're telling me that a message of grace can really help me at that time? And Peter's answer is absolutely, it's the thing you need most. And if you don't yet understand how the message of the crucified, risen, and returning king deals with your day-to-day suffering, bad as it may be, even if it's as bad as what these first century Romans were experiencing, if you don't understand the connection between the message of grace and your day-to-day suffering, then you need more and more of this letter, the true grace of God. It's real. It's strong. You need the true grace of God. Now we conclude today in verses 6 through 11 of chapter 5. This is where Peter says, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you or summoned you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. What's the main point of what Peter writes here? Well, if you look back at chapter 4, the very last phrase of chapter 4, this is where Peter had written his climactic summary of all of his counsel. He said, you need to keep entrusting your life to your faithful creator. And from that point on, he has concluded the rest of the, the book is really on the necessity of humility, humbling ourselves under our faithful creator as we endure suffering. And in the first five verses of chapter 5, which we looked at two weeks ago, Peter urged every believer to be clothed with humility. You see that in verse 5 in particular. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. He wants us to be clothed with a mindset of humility. But when we get into verse 6, where we started reading a minute ago, he's not describing humility as much as a mindset as he's describing it as a strategy. He shifts from talking about a mindset of humility to habits of humility. So I'd state the main point like this. Habits of humility help suffering Christians endure. Are you habitually humbling yourself? 
That's what this passage deals with. If you say how, Peter's going to answer your question. I titled today's message simply Habits of Humility. And Peter counsels three basic habits. Under the, the second one, we're going to see that there are a couple more specific habits that we can, we can put on humility. But he shifts from saying all of you should have a mindset of humility to all of you should be characterized by habitual living in humility. And I want to work through these three in just a practical but simple way. The first one is this. Humbly throw your anxieties onto God. The first critical habit of humility involves casting, throwing, hurling your anxieties on God. This term, cast, is actually only used one other time in the New Testament, and it's describing what people were doing with their, their, their clothing and their robes and their curtains as Jesus was entering into Jerusalem the week before he was crucified. They were hurling these pieces of cloth into the middle of the street, throwing them so that the donkey would have something royal to walk down. Throwing them into the center of the street. That's the idea. Throw your anxieties onto God. And you really have to see the logic of verses 5, 6, and 7. In verse 5, he says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with the humility toward each other. Be humble toward others. And this is a mindset that basically thinks, you are just like me. You're made by God. You're loved by God. What can I do to show you that you matter? That I care about you? That I want to build you up? Humility toward others sounds like that. And Peter actually quotes from Proverbs 3 to encourage that humility. Then in verse 6, he actually digs deeper and he urges every Christian to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. So underneath our humility to others, the humility that we show in our horizontal relationships with other people, underneath it is the foundation of humility before God. And this humble mindset, as I stressed two weeks ago, just constantly thinks, God, you're God, I'm not. You're my creator. I, I desperately, completely rely on you for life and breath. God, you're my savior. You're my sustainer. I am totally dependent on you for grace to be forgiven, for grace to, to be strengthened through every trial. It is this recognition that God is God. We are not. He is the independent one. We are completely dependent physically, spiritually on him. That's humbling ourselves in terms of our relationship with God. Now, it's really interesting here in verse 6 that he uses the phrase, humble yourself under God's mighty hand. Peter is doing something powerful here. Do you know that there is one event in the Bible where God showed his mighty hand, and it's talked about almost 25 times throughout the Bible as the way, the, the place, the time, the season when God showed his mighty hand, his strong hand, his outstretched arm. You know where that is? It's at the Exodus. It's at the Exodus out of Egypt, involving the ten plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea. On the night 
of that tenth plague when the people were going to run out of Egypt, Moses commands this. This is Exodus 13 verse 3. Remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a mighty hand the Lord brought you out of this place. I am certain that Peter is using this language, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. He's using this language deliberately to fill every one of us who read his letter with hope. You see, the God who brought Israel out of Egypt with a mighty hand is our God in our present sufferings, and he will most certainly bring us out of our trials with a mighty hand. So, right now, he says, submit yourself under his mighty hand and wait on his timing to exalt you. That's where he goes at the end of verse 6. So that at the proper time, at his determined time, he may exalt you. This exaltation may not happen in this life, and the exaltation ultimately that we all crave is not to be found in this life. We will most certainly experience exaltation if we humble ourselves under our mighty creator and savior. And we will experience that exaltation at the time that God determines. Now when Peter says that the humble will be exalted, he's actually quoting a dominant truth that Jesus personally taught him. If you look at Luke 14 and Luke 18, Jesus in both places teaches what Peter says here. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. He's quoting Jesus. Now, verse 7, continue with the logic. If you were to ask Peter, so how do I actually humble myself under God's mighty hand? He'd reply with verse 7. So throw your anxieties onto God. It's one of the ways that you humble yourself is to throw your anxieties onto him because he cares for you. And here Peter quotes Psalm 55, 22. Cast your burden on the Lord and he'll sustain you. Now I just, before I apply this and try to ratchet it down for all of us personally, let me just make an observation. And I've deliberately put this up on the screen so that you see that in verse 5, Peter quotes Proverbs 3. In verse 6, he alludes to the Exodus and numerous places throughout that that account. He also refers to Jesus' exact teaching from Luke. And then in verse 7, he repeats Psalm 55. I'm not sure if you knew this reading through Peter, but he can't go a statement without bleeding Bible. And this is one of the main things that I have taken from week after week studying Peter's counsel to suffering believers. I've just said, God, I want the Bible to saturate the way I think and the way I talk and the way I write. I want the Bible to saturate me. Peter is such a profound example. Now I want to go back to the main idea here. Are you filled with anxieties right now? Have you ever considered that anxieties could be a form of pride? 
If you're filled with anxieties, you may be filled with pride. Now, there may be also physical causes for it. Sleeplessness will do it. Hormones will do it. I'm not saying pride is the only cause, but if you're filled with anxieties, you may be proud. You're filled with anxieties because you think too much about yourself and about your problems, and you actually assume that you have more power than you actually have to control your circumstances and to fix your circumstances. And do you know what you need to do? You need to humble yourself under God's mighty hand. Stop worrying and instead take all of your anxieties and throw them onto God. And you might say, I can't even pray right now. I mean, as soon as I close my eyes and I start trying to pray, I'm distracted by all of my anxieties. I would say, well, let's start getting our feet wet. Maybe stop praying silently and start vocalizing your prayers. Start reading psalms and filling in to whatever problem was in the psalm, fill in your problems and say, God, I'm casting my burden on you today. I'm casting my anxieties over my children. I'm casting my anxieties over over my health. I'm casting my anxieties over the tensions that I'm experiencing at work. I'm casting it on you, knowing that you will sustain me. If you say, can you give me other advice? I would say, write out your prayers. Text them to yourself. Write them out in a journal. Focus your prayers so that you are deliberately throwing your anxieties onto God. This is the first critical habit of humility. The second is this. Humbly resist Satan's attempts to kill your faith. This is verses 8 and 9. Peter urges suffering believers to be sober and watchful. And those two terms are often in the New Testament and with Peter directly connected with prayer. Be sober and watchful. And again, I think Peter is echoing the words of Jesus, this time from the last week before the crucifixion. Now Peter writes, Be alert because Satan is prowling around like a lion, a ravenous lion. And some people have observed, it's not original with me, But they've observed that Peter, as he penned this, or as he was quoting this to Silas, saying, tell them to be aware that the malicious opponent of their soul is prowling like a lion. Many people suggest that Peter might have been looking down at his own torso, which had scars from the lion all over it. You remember the night before Jesus died? Jesus goes to Peter and he said, Satan came to me and he asked me permission to ruin you. And Jesus said, Peter, you're going to fail, but you are not going to fall away because I've prayed for you. And that night, the lion sunk its jaws into Peter. 
Peter said, no, I'm going to follow the Messiah no matter what happens, no matter what sufferings come. That night, he was proven to be a coward. He was proven to love his life more than Jesus's. He was proven to be committed more to himself than to his Savior. As Peter wrote, be alert because Satan is prowling like a lion. He was doing so with scars. He was remembering his own failures. Now, thankfully, that failure wasn't final, and it doesn't have to be final for any of Christ's people. But do you realize, do you realize, every believer in here, do you realize that there is a person existing, alive today, a self-centered person, a God-hating angel who would love for you to respond to your trials by choosing to hate God and what he's done in your life and choosing to turn on God and say, following you hasn't been worth it. I thought you were great. I thought you were good, but my life has just gotten worse since I've trusted Jesus. God Submitting to you hasn't made my life any better. It's just made it worse. I'm done with you. Do you know that there is a malicious opponent who would love to use your trials to ruin your faith? Peter says, be on the alert. But also note that Peter is the guy who had scars from the lion. He had failed miserably. He had gotten back up. And this is the guy who urges us to resist our lion-like enemy. And he says, resist him firm in your faith. You see that in verse 9, firm in your faith. And then the end of verse 9, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced. So it's under this habit of humility that I want to dig deeper and give actually three greater habits of humility. The first is keep a constant watch. If you say, how do I actually resist Satan? Keep a constant watch. Peter says, be watchful. Watchfulness is a proactive habit of soldiers, often in the middle of the night, where they are keeping a systematic alert. They're looking there, they're looking there, they're looking there, they're looking there. They're keeping a systematic alert to see if any of the borders are being threatened by an enemy. Do you do that? Are you watchful? Systematically, consistently watchful? I think older generations of Christians did it much better than we do today. Uh, David Brainerd is a young man who I've studied, his life I've studied, He lived to be 29. He died in 1747. And throughout his 20s, he had a devotional habit to every day or two write in a private journal about an eight or ten line answer to these sorts of questions. How intense is my longing for Christ-likeness? How intense is my hatred of temptation? How intense is my longing for the gospel's advance? How much do I yearn for Jesus' kingdom to come? Simple questions like this. He would systematically keep watch over his heart, saying, where is sin encroaching? Am Am I letting my guard down? 
He journaled his answers, eight or ten lines, a couple times a week. And I'm not suggesting that that's some sort of requirement. It's just a helpful suggestion for one way to obey this command, to resist your enemy, resist your malicious opponent. The second is this, keep believing what you believe. Peter says, resist him firm in your faith. He doesn't say go out, look for something else to help you. He says, keep firm in what you believe. I think of Kristen Getty's song. Do not forsake the truth you learned in the beginning. Go back to the ABCs, as it were. The basics of our faith include God created me. Jesus died because he loves me and he rose again. He certainly has the power to remake this earth. Randy Alcorn is a Christian leader, an author whose life and teaching God has used to shape my life. We have a few copies of, I think, what is his best book in the lobby, Heaven, thick book, which he, he meditates on. What does the Bible teach about heaven? And they're short, like eight or nine page chapters that each answer a question, what is heaven like? Will there be this in heaven? What should we think about this question that a lot of people ask? His book on heaven is great. He has studied heaven and written numerous books on it, He has studied it for decades. In the past few years, he has faced trials like never before. A few years ago, his wife, Nancy, was diagnosed with cancer. She battled it till this March when the cancer ended up winning. She passed away, actually, the day after our series began, March 28th. It was a Monday. And that very evening... Randy wrote this. Nancy's with Jesus. So happy for her. Sad for us. But the happiness for her triumphs over sadness. Grieving is ahead. It will be hard. All God's children, referring to all those who committed their lives to Jesus, all God's children really will live happily ever after. This is no fairy tale. It's the blood-bought promise of Jesus. As of a few hours ago, Nancy now lives where she sees this firsthand. This is the hardest trial he's yet faced in his life. And what did Randy have to do? He just had to keep believing. The truth that he saw in the light, he had to keep believing in the darkness. Let me just say, if you've not trusted Jesus, if you've not confessed that Jesus is God become man, crucified, risen, and returning to reign as king on this planet, then you don't have a faith to stand firm in yet. You need to exercise faith. I urge you to do it today. Jesus is alive. He is coming again. He's the only way to God. You must commit your life to him if you want to be reconciled to God and if you want to have a faith to stand firm in when you're in trials. The third, what I might call sub-habit under this resist the devil, resist any attempt that he makes to ruin your faith is this. You should keep informed of global Christian suffering. Again, that's what 
Peter says at the end of verse 9 when he says, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You must remember in your suffering that you're not the only one suffering. So how do you do this? Sign up for reports from Voice of the Martyrs or Operation World. Another way is just sign up with our international teammates and read their regular updates. You can go out. I think there's one copy of Faith Cook's Singing in the Fire. Just short little chapters of biographies of Christians who've suffered. Or go to the library and get a book on Christian suffering. In the last year, I've referred to Georgie Vins, who suffered in prison in Russia. Or Corey Tenboom earlier in this series, I referenced her book, The Hiding Place. Get those books out. Get an audiobook on Hoopla. These will remind you that you're not alone in your suffering. You remember what Dave Ayers pointed out last week when he was speaking to us about how the lions go after sheep, how the predators go after the prey? They look for the ones who get isolated from the group. It's one reason that you should gather with the church. It is one way of avoiding the attacks of your lion-like enemy. But the enemy can get in your head. You can be sitting here this morning and be thinking, I'm all alone. What do you need to do? Talk to someone else about it. And get informed that you are not alone. There are Christians all around the world who are suffering like you. And there are Christians all around the world suffering worse than you. You are not alone in your suffering as a Christian. John, you're right there. It was such a privilege to hear you testify of God's grace in your life. And as I've been preparing this message, and as I've been praying for you throughout this week, the two burdens have kind of wed together. And I've just sensed that I want to remind you and preach to you personally that you need to beware of your enemy. One of the ways that your enemy is going to try to get into your head is he's going to try to make you think that you are suffering, you are all alone, no one knows, no one cares, and no one's like you to the extent that you've suffered. No one's had a, had a past like me. No one's had issues like I've had in my life in the last two years. You're going to have attacks on your spirit that force you to think of yourself as all alone, worse than anybody else. And Peter's message to you, and I think this message directly to you, will, will help. He would say, no, no, John, you have got to keep throwing your anxieties on God. You have got to keep resisting your enemy, and you do that by keeping watch, by, by keeping on believing what you believe, and simply by keeping aware that other believers are suffering. You know, one of the best things you can do when you're tempted to have a pity party is pick up the phone, call someone else, and say, say, how are you struggling today? Can I pray for you? And let them tell you about their struggles. And you don't even have to talk to them about yours. 
you're going to sense a, a sort of buoying of your spirit up to say, I'm not alone in this. You know what? I'm going to pray for you, and it's going to remind you of God's grace. Don't let your enemy attack you by making you feel like you are all alone. You're not. I want us all to look at the third point very, very simply and briefly. In verses 10 and 11, the third habit is to choose to praise God today. Humbly praise the God who reigns. He reigns as long as your suffering lasts, and he will reign long after it's past. This is where Peter ends with a doxology, a prayer for God to be glorified. Doxologies are really interesting. To him be dominion forever. What kind of a prayer is that? It's simply saying, God, you reign forever. God, I want you to reign forever. What kind of a prayer is that? What are we asking for? Are we helping God reign forever? Are we praying that God will reign? No, we're not praying that he'll reign forever. We're not helping him reign forever. What a doxology is, is it's aligning our hearts with reality. God, you reign forever, and I love it. I'm thrilled about it. I'm aligned with reality. That's what a doxology is. And this doxology is remarkable because he's urging us to praise God while we're suffering. He says, praise the God who reigns while you suffer. See, it's not just that God will reign. It's that he does reign. We don't offer this praise when we get out of the suffering. We offer it while we're in the suffering. Second, this praise is certain that God won't let us go. That's why Peter piles these four terms one on top of another. God will restore, confirm, strengthen, establish you. The God who reigns will give us strength to endure our sufferings. That's why we praise him today. And third, the praise of the God who reigns is the praise of God as the God of all grace. The one who reigns, the God who reigns, the God to whom dominion belongs forever is the God of all grace. This is just really, really helpful. Do you see those words? The God of all grace. After you've suffered a while, the God of all grace, verse 10. Sometimes in our suffering, we can, without even realizing it, flood our souls with a sense of entitlement. That God owes me ease. God owes me an end. And we forget that he's the God of all grace. What does God owe us? He owes us hell. That's what each of us deserves. That's what each of us is entitled to. But instead, God has saved us. He's promised to sustain us. He has secured us until we experience what he says, Peter says in in, in verse 10, until we experience his eternal glory in Christ. We've been summoned to experience that. It's just critical that we give ourselves to praise, to praising the God who reigns as the God of all grace, and we remind ourselves that we're not entitled to any good thing he does. 
These are the sorts of habits that will sustain us through suffering. Now, I want to conclude by giving an illustration. I love history. I love well-written American history. And through the past few months, I've actually chipped away at the book by Major Dick Winters called Beyond Band of Brothers. Dick is the lead character in Stephen Ambrose's best-selling book, Band of Brothers, and that was turned into a popular TV series about 20 years ago. Band of Brothers and Beyond Band of Brothers, which gives more information about it, it just recounts the history of the Army's Easy Company. They were the group of soldiers that were trained at Camp Tekoa in Georgia. They parachuted onto the beaches of Normandy at D-Day, and they were central in the last major stronghold of the German army called the Battle of the Bulge. It lasted about six weeks, and this company was central in this agonizing victory. Dick Winters passed away 10 years ago, just before his 93rd birthday. He was a great military leader, and his memoirs are filled with humility. It was one of my main takeaways from the book. This was a humble leader. Dick's humility was especially shaped early on in his career by submitting to seemingly insane discipline at Camp Tekoa. His first lieutenant was Herbert Sobel. Most of the guys in the camp questioned whether he had everything right upstairs. He put them through insane amounts of discipline. And yet, Winters years later looked back on this and he acknowledged that this seeming insane discipline, I'm quoting him, was producing a magnificent company. The most physically fit company in the military at the time. His humility was further demonstrated not just as he submitted to Sobel's insane discipline, but as he submitted to fighting a war he didn't fully understand. He says, it wasn't until I saw for myself the tortured Jews at Koffering in 1945. He said, when I witnessed that horrific sight, I'm quoting him, he says, now I know why I'm here. For the first time, I understand what this war is all about. And yet, even though the war didn't make sense to him, he humbly submitted to orders. As you keep reading his memoirs, his humility continues to stand out. After the war was over, he was asked often to speak in military classes or in business conferences. He was asked to speak on the subject of leadership because he was a remarkable military leader. And he described humility as one of the most crucial facets of endurance in the military. He would simply say, he's become famous for this, remain humble, hang tough, Never, ever give up. I think that's a good illustration of the way Peter concludes his counsel to suffering Christians. We don't understand why we're in the pain we're in. We don't understand why this war is dragging on so long. And we don't understand why it might be so important for God to keep allowing us to endure such suffering. And Peter basically looks at us in conclusion, and to use the words of Major Winters, he says, remain humble. You keep throwing your anxieties on God. 
You keep resisting your enemy. You keep praising God, choosing to praise the God who reigns. Just keep on. Hang tough. Never, ever give up. 